The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John and the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it's for those with whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away for ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back by the kids zone sign. If this is your child's first time, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Thanks, Karis. Well, good morning again, and we are uh, in the book of Mark, and we've been calling it an upside-down kingdom, as Jesus uh, tells us what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he's bringing. Uh, Next week will be our last week, and we'll take a pause and do a quick nine-week summer series uh, in uh, Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit uh, as we kind of topically and individually look at different things, Um, but just to give you all a heads up. Like I said, Mark uh, 10, upside down kingdom, and uh, this is probably, uh, I don't speak hyperbolically, the thing that sums it all up, the things that, that we really see the upside downness of what Jesus offers compared to what we think we should have, what should be, what he should bring. Uh, this is the one that sums it all up. And I want to begin by telling you of a famous author of mine, uh, Henry Nowen. He was a priest and a professor. Uh, he began as a priest and then uh, went to South Bend and was a, a taught at Notre Dame for a number of years. And then from there went to Yale, uh, wherever Yale is, and went to Yale Town. And so um, was at, was, I was at Yale and taught there for a number of years. Went to Boston, taught at Harvard for a number of years. After a few years at Harvard, he left and then went to La Arche 
Daybreak community in Ontario. L'Arche Daybreak is a community of intellectually and developmentally disabled individuals who live in a community. Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, L'Arche. We went from the greatest elitist minds in academia to people who couldn't even do the most elementary of tasks. Henry Nouwen doesn't just embody uh, what Mark 10, what we're going to look at this morning, talks about, but he reminds us actually the only way we can truly find greatness is if we go low, is if we serve, is if we uh, don't climb the ladders that are in front of us, but in fact take the low, small road, go down, not up. It's easy to think and see this passage, and it's loaded with Christianese words, right? Terms that are uh, we've heard of before, and we know what they mean, and maybe even have defined by other people around us uh, because of our experience with them, and it may kind of dilute that meaning or at least uh, corner the meaning. And what I would offer you is that the things and the tenets in Mark uh, 10, 32 to 45 are, are actually not just a way of living, but it's only, it's the way of living. That Jesus didn't uh, come to say, hey, this might be a good idea, just try it out and let me know. He's saying the only way you can find life is if you model the cross as I'm going to the cross. And he invites us into it. And so we'll look at three things this morning in Mark 10. We'll see the insecure self, uh, the slow savior, and then third, the embracing of his accomplishment. And so with that in mind, let's pray and ask Holy Spirit to be with us. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you because you've promised that you would send your spirit. That when your people gather in a room and and open your word and, and begin to see who you are and what you've done and what you're doing, that you move. And so this day, Lord, uh, this is all for naught if that doesn't happen. Would you get the insecure person speaking to this passage about insecure people aside so that the king of all things, the son of man, can be seen high and lifted up just as he is this very day for us. We pray, Christ, in your name. Amen. So first we see uh, the, the insecure self. Uh, They're walking towards Jerusalem. It's clear in the opening of the passage that Jesus is in front of the disciples and the people who are following him. And they're going towards Jerusalem, and it says they're afraid. The disciples and the people following Jesus are afraid. Doesn't know exactly why it says that, but we can maybe deduce a few things that are very possible. It could be that Uh, They're following him because he's king, and he's going to take over the Roman enemy-occupying nation. And he's going to reign over them and militaristically take over. And so they're afraid because there's a tension that's about to happen in a clash. They could be afraid because he said, they, they remember enough to remember, he said he'll suffer, so maybe we'll suffer also. So, So we're afraid about our suffering. Whatever it is, they know that The enemies, the people who don't like Jesus, are in Jerusalem. And where are they going? Right into the heart of Jerusalem. So they're going into Jerusalem, and they're terrified. They're saying, this is is where the enemy lives. This is where the religious elites who want Jesus gone, uh, 
live, and they are afraid. And so Jesus pulls them aside and tells them what's going to happen. As they're walking to Jerusalem, he says, hey guys, in Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. He says uh, that, that he's going to be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and he'll be condemned to death. Condemned is a word that's uh, a judicial word. It's, it's, it's a courtroom word. He will be condemned. He will call, be called, not innocent, but, but, but guilty, condemned. He will be delivered over the Gentiles. So not just the Jews are against him, the scribes, but the Gentiles are against him. And when he's handed over to the Gentiles, then he'll be mocked on, or mocked, spit on, flogged, killed. He gives them the details and the gory descriptions of what's going to happen to him. And at the very end, he says, after three days, I'll rise. I'll win the day. All that's going to happen, and we're going there right now. He makes it clear that he's come to do one thing, and it's to die. He's telling his disciples, we're going there, and I'm going to die. It's going to happen. And the disciples hear this, and and James and John specifically hear everything Jesus is saying to them, and only can interpret it through their own grid of self-gain. They can only hear it through what's in it for me. They can only hear it as, we've got to nail something down from Jesus. We've got to make sure we have things assured. They want to ink the deal before all the things that Jesus has said happens. And so it says, after Jesus describes his death and his resurrection, it says, and James and John, in verse 35, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said, teacher, after Jesus just said, I'm going to die, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit at one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They don't care about the fact that Jesus is going to suffer. All they care about is nailing down and inking the deal and having assurances that they will reign with Jesus in glory. We're going to Jerusalem, Jesus. You're going to overthrow the Roman government, Jesus. When you reign in your glory, Jesus, over the Roman government, let us, let us be in your C-suite. Let us be right there with you. They're asking them, they're asking Jesus, hey, I'm not really interested in the whole death thing, but the whole reign and glory thing, hey, that's, can we just figure that out real quick and just kind of get a promise, a handshake. We'll get a handshake deal. They're looking at the horizon, the final days of Jesus, what's ahead of them. Uh, They're looking and realizing that there's a lot of things that are left undone on their own behalf, that that they need to nail this thing down. Because Jesus is about to die. We need to make sure we're taken care of. And so they look at the horizon of what's ahead in Jerusalem, and their insecurity sets in. They realize that there's a great deal out there that that could be taken from them or things that could uh, disturb their plans. And they scramble to ensure their future. And oftentimes when we look at the very thing ahead of us, not our current reality, but just the next thing up, whatever the next thing up in your life is, we look at it and all of a sudden it brings out in us a fear and an insecurity just like it does with the disciples. And just like the disciples, we scramble to ensure something that, about us because whatever's next up, something can be taken from us. 
what I see in the future, something can take something from me, and therefore I will nail something down and make sure I get what I need to make sure I'm secure. The story of fear and insecurity in our own hearts makes us do things and unsettles us in such a way that we want to nail something down and make sure we're taken care of, that we want to be reassured that we're safe or that we're not threatened that we're connected, we're not isolated from other people, that, that, that we're well off and, instead of lacking and in need, that we're thought highly of and not left to the jury of the people around us or, or the vocations that we have, that we have power and then we're not powerless. There's something that if we think we have, we'll be fine. And the disciples think if we have power, if we are sitting to the right and the left of the guy who's reigning over all things, we'll be good. So Jesus Let's just kind of get that thing down real quick before we go into Jerusalem and you do the die thing. And, and, but we're there. But we're there with you. The insecure self has them go and nail things down and finagle their future. They want power because they do not want to be powerless. And Henry Nowen, the person who we just heard about, Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard, La Arch, says this. He says, what makes temptation, the temptation of power so irresistible? Maybe it's that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to, to control people than to love people, easier to own your own life than to love life. When we have power, we aren't asked to love because of that, the disciples want power. Because when you have to love someone, you have to sacrifice. You have to adapt to their needs. Something is asked of you. But when you have power, everybody's coming to you. You reign over other people. Nothing can be taken from you. In their mind, if they have power, then they'll be fine. They'll be set. And the dance of if then is the thing that constantly goes off in our head. The alarm that, that, that screams for our own answers. Because when I look at the horizon of my life, something that, that, in, that causes insecurity to rise up in me, I will answer the if then and somehow, some kind of way, if then will be answered and it's a natural tendency. We want to soothe our insecurities by filling in the blanks. If I have blank, then I will be blank. If I have more money, I'll be set. If I have more power, I'll, I'll need nothing. If I have more sex and intimacy, then I'll actually be known. If I have recognition, then actually I'll feel like I have esteem. If I have stability, everything will be okay. The chaos will be at bay. If I have validating words, I'll actually feel like the thing that I think that I am. If then, what are the blanks that you fill in? If I have this, my insecurities are soothed and the things on the horizon don't look as threatening as I think they look. The dance of if then is a harsh mistress and yet it's something that's so natural. Now, are the things that fill in the if blank wrong? If I have this, is that wrong? No, they're just asked too much of. John Steinbeck in his novel, East of Eden, says that indeed most, most of their vices are attempted shortcuts to love. 
The things that have our number are often the things that are just asked too much of because they're just a shortcut to love. Like Henry Nouwen said, things are so easily uh, taken in because it avoids the hard task of love. That's what we see in the disciples. So this day, I want to ask you the question of what does the story of fear and insecurity tell you? that your fear and insecurity, when you look out into the world around you or even in your own heart, what does that story tell you as you are so insecure in your own self? Don't worry. An insecure person is telling you this. How we answer that question often tells us how we fill the if-then sentences. The insecurities and fear of the disciples say, hey, I want to have power because then I'll be okay then actually everything I've sacrificed up to now will be worth it. Our fear and our insecurity tells us and asks something of us because we want to soothe the insecure self. That's what, is, that's what marks the disciples in this little passage. But we need to also see what marks Jesus. And it's, it's the second idea that he's the slow savior. He's a slow savior. He, the three people in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit, I came up with this idea that, that we're going to redeem humanity and we're going to redeem God's people by this plan where we're going to author and, and accomplish redemption and we're going we're to apply redemption to, redemption to them. We're going to do all those things. And Jesus tells his disciples in the three times as of recent to this passage what that plan looks like. These people have been following him for three years. And in Mark 8, he tells him for the first time explicitly, and he says, hey, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to be killed. They're going to kill me. And Peter pulls him aside and says, uh, it says he begins to start rebuking Jesus. So we see the first time that he tells them explicitly of the cross and the plan to accomplish redemption for them, uh, they are against it. They're like, no, Jesus, that's not what we signed up for. And he rebukes Jesus. The, the, the second time in Mark 9, it says that uh, he, he tells them this, the plan of the cross and he's going to die for them. And uh, it says that they are, uh, don't know what he's talking about and they're too afraid to ask him. They're fearful of him and fearful of the plan. And this third time, obviously, we just heard about uh, that they're actually egocentric about it. They're saying, okay. This is the third time we're talking about it. I guess it's the real deal. It's actually going to happen. I've got to figure out what's in it for me. And here's the dialogue. It says, where we're going, he tells them, I'm going to be horrifically be killed and, and lose my life. And I will rise. And the disciples say, hey, Jesus, can you give us what we ask of you? Because you better give us what we ask of you. You know, that's, it's unaware at its best and it's manipulative at its worst. And Jesus says to him, them, uh, well, what do you want from me? What would you like from me? And they say, can we sit at your right hand and, and your left hand? They could be direct number twos. The, could be the assistant regional manager, not just the assistant to the regional manager. Can we be your number twos? And Jesus says, actually, that, that's a big thing to ask. You don't know what you're asking because... Uh, Actually, can you drink the cup that I drink, the cup of God's wrath against sin? Can you drink that cup? And can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Be immersed in the judgment of God. And they're like, yeah, we can do that. 
They just can't get out of their own way. Remember, these guys have been following him for three years. They're his best friends. They spent almost every waking hour with him. And here they're missing the fact why he actually came. They're totally missing it. And what does Jesus do? He's not shaming. He's not irritable. He's not angry. He's not indignant or offended or degrading or repulsed or reactive. He's slow. And he's gentle. And he engages them exactly where they are to change them. He is the master conversationalist as he's the master physician. He's master conversationalist. He talks with you and engages with you. And it's a, it, it's, it's a dialogue. And he's the master physician in such a way that he knows exactly who you are and what's ailing you and what you're believing in more than him. And actually he draws it out in you because he wants you to see it, both what you're believing in more than him, what it actually is, and also he wants you to believe in him boldly. He wants to encounter the real you. So as the master conversationalist, as the master physician, he engages you to change you. And we see that here with the disciples. Last week we talked about um, the, the uh, rich young ruler who was rich. Uh, in case you forgot, he was rich. He had a lot of money. He was young. He was youthful. He was spry. He was uh, much not like myself. Right? He, was, he, was, he had all this uh, beautiful life ahead of him. He was a ruler. He had power, and he would tell people what to do and where to go and how to do it. Everyone is jealous of that guy, and all of a sudden, that guy who we're all jealous of says, hey, actually, I'm lacking something. The, thing, the person who we think lacks nothing says, I'm lacking something. Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And in a conversation with him, at least in that moment, he draws out in this guy, this rich young ruler, what he's trusting in more than Jesus. And also right after this passage that we're looking at today, we'll see the blind beggar Bartimaeus. How he cries out for Jesus and he's begging Jesus and calling out. He says, son of David. He's saying, you're the guy we've all been waiting for. And and the disciples say, shut up. Be quiet. And Jesus says, actually, no, no. Bring him to me. And they begin talking and he's healed Elsewhere in the Gospels, we see in John 3 that Nicodemus is this religious elite person. He comes to Jesus and he says, in the middle of the night, and kind of in secret, and says, Jesus, uh, I'm, I'm about what you are doing. Help me see it in such a way that I can believe it. And he's saying, you have to be born again. And he's like, okay, I'm an adult, I'm a grown person, and born again, I've been born once, it just doesn't work. Jesus, like the way you're asking me to do it, anatomically not possible. What does Jesus do? He's slow about it. Right after that, in the longest conversation he has with someone in the Gospels, woman at the well, he talks with this woman and reveals and draws out her story in her, not in a way that's shaming because it was shaming in that day because she was an outsider, but in a way that's dignifying and revealing. Jesus is the master conversationalist because he knows exactly who you are as the great physician and he draws out the real you. You are not asked to sound smart or fun or full or uh, uh, not lacking before Jesus. 
You are not asked to go before Jesus in those manners. What you're asked to go before Jesus in and converse with Jesus is with your whole real self. Because when the real self encounters the real Savior, then real change happens. He's slow. What does it do for you to know that Jesus, whether it's an arrogant insiders like his best friends who are misunderstanding him, or ostracized outsiders like the woman at the well and everyone in between, what does it do for you to know that the Savior of all things has come, and when he engages you, he's slow? And he walks you through your own story to rewrite it in such a way that you can look at the things that you believe in more than him, the, the, the lies that you've called truth, and say, I, I think I can believe you, Jesus, more than the things that I'm believing in now. He's a slow savior, a master conversationalist who's come to change the real us. And lastly, we see in this that, that we're called to embrace his accomplishment the insecure disciples and the slow savior. And at the very end of the passage, Jesus shows us that we're called to embrace his accomplishment. In the Old Testament, uh, Daniel is a book. It's a major prophet, and it's really weird. There's a lot of things we can't explain, but there's great things that uh, we can't explain. And um, we can hold that mystery intention also. But in uh, Daniel 7, Daniel's having this vision, and he's seeing these things. And as he's uh, seeing these things, and, and actually it's the worst time for um, Israel, for the people of Israel, that they're captive to the Babylonians, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's reigning over them, and they're enslaved, and Daniel sees this vision and, and realizes when everything is made right and made good and whole, here's one thing a part of that, and here's the why behind that. That when everything is made right in the future and when redemption comes, Daniel, in Daniel 7, shows us this. Daniel 7, the vision says, In my vision, at night I looked, and there was before me one that looked like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel sees this human being come and in a gloriously way uh, shows us how he's actually coming and bringing a great victory. That there's uh, authority, glory, sovereign power, everlasting dominion, indestructible kingdom. Fast forward to Mark 10. Jesus brings all of his people together who are following him, about to go into Jerusalem, and he's about to die. And he tells them, after they've asked for a selfish request, he reminds them this. In verse 42, And you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their greats exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man coming on clouds of glory in Daniel 7 is the very same person who's telling his disciples, the Son of Man has come to give himself for many, to be a ransom for many. How does Jesus, the Son of Man, accomplish the whole glory and authority and everyone bowing down to him and everything? It's through losing for you and I. He's a ransom, that he's the one. It's this, uh, lutron's the Greek word, that that he's come to die for us in our place, to to purchase us. He is the substitutionary sacrifice, the one who has come to die for many. And that same person is the same one who will one day, just as Daniel 7 saw, will reign over all things and bring all goodness and when he comes, there will be no tears or mourning or crying or pain. He's come to do all those things. He is a sacrifice for us, not to demand things of us, but to deliver you and I. That the Son of Man has come to serve and be a ransom for many. It's not just a form of love, this sacrificial uh, service. We need to know from this passage one thing, and it's that the only way to love is sacrificial service. There is no other offshoot, blend, any kind of adaptation, cocktail. The only way love can ever be true love is service and sacrifice. Any other kind of love besides that is not love. And Jesus says, I've come to embody it to the full. And it's no wonder why we watch any movie. Something wakes up in us when we see some character, some person, give of themselves for the sake of another. Something in us comes alive, comes awake. Whether it's um, uh, Harry Potter and Harry Potter, uh, whether it's Jack and the Titanic, whether it's um, Libby Briggs wanted me to tell you that it's in Star Wars. All the movies that we watch, something in us comes alive when we see someone sacrifice and give of themselves of their life for someone else. And, and it's because of this. It's because we long to be, be seen as beautiful enough to be sacrificed for. I want to be so beautiful that someone actually would lay everything down for me. And also, comma, I want to do the very same because I think, actually, to be human is to do that. We want to be seen as beautiful enough for that to happen to us, and we want to be human enough for that to be given to someone else as we sacrifice ourselves. And Jesus says, that model is the model that he invites us into. He says, join me. You want to be great? You can't lord over people like you want to lord over them. Because you think, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, take out the Romans, and then lord over them. So you want to lord over them because they've lorded over you and switch spots. He said, no, 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 no. You want to be great? You want to be more human? Go low. Serve. Give of yourself. Be a sacrifice for others. True love. And the only way we can embrace that with an undivided heart, without selfish intentions of living a life of sacrifice, is if we know 
that the person telling us this has given us everything so we lack nothing. If I think um, I'm lacking something or I'm empty in some way, I will go out into the world and live my life day in and day out asking everyone and everything around me to validate who I think I am and how that's not true. That the false things that I believe, I'm going to ask everyone to say, hey, that's not true of you. But when we know that we have a fullness given to us by Christ, that when we lack nothing, we can go into the world full, lacking nothing. We risk nothing going out there because we lack nothing. We don't have to ask for anything because we have everything. And it's all because we have to embrace his accomplishment for us. At the very beginning of this, we hear in Mark 10 that the Son of Man will go and be judicially, a courtroom word, condemned, that a kangaroo court will condemn me in Jerusalem. And one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, Romans 8, Paul writes in the, from the very beginning, the very first verse of the greatest chapter of the Bible, arguably, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can look at you and say anything about you because Christ has the final word about you. He was condemned, so we would never know condemnation. And he says, because of that, because of that fullness, step into a life of service. Because there you'll be more human. And I'll end with this. David Brooks is a New York Times writer, and he says... um, He says this piece in a book of his, A Road to Character. He says, Joy is not produced because others praise you. Joy emanates unbidden, unforced. Joy comes as a gift when you least expect it. At those fleeting moments, you know why you were put here and what truth you serve. You may not feel giddy, At those moments, you may not hear the orchestra's delirious swell or flashes of crimson and gold, but you will feel satisfaction, a silence, a peace, a hush. Those moments are blessings and the signs of a beautiful life. The disciples wanted those things, a silence, a peace, a hush. And to get those things, they said, Jesus, can we sit your right and your left and be good and satisfied? I don't know what you're asking for in your life to give you the silence and the peace and the hush, but you're asking something of it. And the beauty of the one who is condemned for us so that we would never be condemned or no condemnation is the one who says, I've given you everything. You lack nothing. Go out into your life with fullness because you can serve anyone and everyone Let's pray. Christ, you had everything. And you became nothing for us. In this day, we run to creature comforts, to to silos of significance, to so many cul-de-sacs that ask we ask to give us a silence and a peace and a hush. And yet you said that the beautiful life is one where we give ourselves 
for the sake of another because you've given yourself for the sake of us. Lord, may we enter into your story of sacrificial love more than our own story of an insecurity and of fear. This is only possible, Holy Spirit, if you do this this very moment. Change our hearts. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen. this very moment. Change our hearts. We pray in your name, Christ. Amen.